0: Hello and welcome to Farm to Fork, a program dedicated to exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the Valley's culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, and packagers to brewers and restaurateurs and everybody in between. My name is Sue, and uh, Tom Clark, thank you very much, is uh, joining me in the studio, Tommy Twilight, tonight. Uh, Tonight, And uh, Jessica actually has the night off. Tonight we're talking with Mary Johnson, founder of the Regenerative Farms. Regenerative Farms. It is good to have you with us, Mary. What led you to getting involved with regenerative farming?
1: Uh, Thanks so much for the opportunity to come and speak with everyone. I really appreciate it so i've been i guess growing things from the time i could walk i have always had a passion for just putting seeds in the ground and trying to get things to grow so i guess my journey started a long time ago Um, but along the path i bumped into sort of the big scary reality that we're all trying to grapple with of climate change and I worked for a number of years traveling to different parts of the world and helping farmers try to cope with the, the actualities of farming in a changing climate. And that is what really kind of brought me to the solution that I feel is very hopeful of regenerative agriculture. So would you say since
0: you started at such a young age that you have a green thumb?
1: I think it's a little bit more brown at this point. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I I would say I just have a heart for making things green again that maybe are not doing well. (laughs) Good to know.
0: I've had friends that will pull a a plant out of somebody's trash that's on its last (laughs) legs, and they look beautiful after a couple of years, and I I have to give it to them because I'm a plant killer, so I can't really...
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I would fall into that category,
0: for sure. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what uh, disciplines uh, does uh, regenerative design pull from?
1: That's a great question. So from the way we look at regeneration and the concept of regenerative agriculture, um We really look at it as a process, as an action that anybody can do at any point, any kind of farmer can get involved in regenerative agriculture. It's a little bit different from something like organic agriculture, which is sort of an ending point or um, a line that you must cross and meet certain thresholds to be considered an organic farm. Regeneration for us is a bit more of a continuum where there's many actions that a farmer takes on a daily basis, um, and they can be on the spectrum end where things are being really destroyed on the planet and for people. For an example, massive deforestation in Indonesia to plant and farm um, huge monoprop plantations of African oil palm for commodity production. So that would be on the very far end of the degenerative side of this continuum that we might imagine. And then on the far other side of that spectrum would be a farm that's really intending to grow food or fiber or other types of things that we grow on farms but in a way that, at the same time, is helping solve some of these big, ugly problems that the world is facing, like poverty and hunger. Um, And so that's uh, a very vast space that needs lots of tools in the toolbox, so to speak, to address the different kinds of degeneration. It can, in our context, even include social regeneration, so rebuilding the types of economic systems of oppression that have been around for a very long time that have degraded communities and culture, um, and including that also in the farming system and repairing um, the social bonds that have been obliterated through colonialism and other types of oppression that are still very well alive today around the world. it can go from everything to from permaculture design to holistic management to organic farming, centropic agroforestry, um, intensive soil health restoration practices. Uh, and a lot of what we do is really help people look at and assess where their ecosystem and their social community stands today and set goals of how they want to improve it, what they can do to accelerate that transition to healing those systems and then the different techniques they can use and pull together to make that happen in a way that they are also able to grow the crops that they are looking to produce for the world.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that about um, the colonialism because there's uh, one of the folks we had in probably a couple of years ago now. There's blueberry barons here somewhere uh, mm-hmm. in Western Mass, and the folks they're all lowbush blueberries, and you know they're uh, maybe thousands of years old. They mm-hmm. were saying that the Indians actually maintained them and burn, you know, would burn them off periodically, mm-hmm. and you know the family that has the land now does this not the same thing but that they're very um they they're very humble about how somebody else established those barons and they're still mm-hmm. functioning this to oh. this day and we do we come in and with the you know high intensity fertilizers and sometimes obliterate often obliterate um practices and we just we we've lost so much even looking back at the mayans they say they had all these systems of water transport and processes to keep you know, their farms when they had large populations that they could still sustain them. So what what models do you look for for inspiration, would you say?
1: Well, I've been very lucky in my career to really get a chance to spend time with some of the early pioneers in a lot of these fields. Um, this has been something I've been deeply passionate and embedded in for 25 years or so now. So if you're looking for large-scale examples Um, Will Harris, who's a livestock farmer in Georgia, is someone that I think of as a a great model of this. He's done a lot of work with different scientists from Arizona State University and others to really document the progress that he can make transitioning a highly degraded chemical agriculture field over to one that's regenerating and starting to restore the soil microbial communities as well as the organic matter the ability to draw down carbon um, and the full life cycle analysis of his type of farming. And others um, in the commodity crop space that are doing this regeneratively, getting off of the uh, hamster wheel of purchasing high cost chemical inputs. Um, folks that come to mind are Adam Chapel, who's down in the Arkansas area. He Farms with his family around 7,000 acres of a variety of different crops from cotton to um, beans and livestock and, and many things in between. And then there are other examples, which are more of the farms that we work with in our organization, which is a 501 c 3 not-for-profit. Um, we work with very small scale farmers that are often farming for subsistence on an acre or less. Um, And there are some really amazing groups that we're working with who are doing that by restoring native forests in the Amazon and planting back species that were economically um, over harvested because of their high value and basically extinct in the local region. They are replanting those species and then developing different kinds of um, forest farming to make a living from protecting and restoring degraded Amazonian habitat.
0: So you mentioned um, over harvested things that are no longer growing in the wild that are being replanted. Would could you would you be able to give us just an example of one or something? Sure.
1: That's... Yeah. So the way that we work is actually by supporting local grassroots organizations who have created their own economic um, project, their own community led initiatives. And so uh, one of our primary partners that we're working with right now is Camino Verde. They're located in the Peruvian Amazon. And they've been working there for over a decade now. Um, They originally went there uh, looking to learn how to propagate these economic species of importance that were cut out of the forest and no longer existed. And so rosewood is one example of that type of tree. Uh, It's a beautiful rainforest tree, lots of different values, and it was um, completely exterminated from much of its range. It was a popular essential oil that they would just come in and tear up these trees, roots and all, and ship them out to go into everything from um, different products, including Chanel Number 5. So when they went originally to try and find this species so that they could start learning how to grow it, it's not, not every tree will just grow. If you plant a seed in the ground, it has to have specific microbial partners present in the soil and very specific ways of treating the seed to get it to, to grow and then thrive and turn into a, a mature reproducing tree. So it took them five years of searching just to find one seed tree that they could get seed from. Wow. Um, but this was the species that the indigenous population there that they were working together with wanted to restore. It was something that was of um, high cultural importance, even though they had been enslaved by those extractive organizations that were forcing them to provide the labor to, to haul out these trees. But now, fast forward a decade, they've planted uh, thousands of these trees, and they're now at an age where they can be sustainably harvested with just small branches harvested on a weekly basis by the indigenous communities that have replanted them and turned into a sustainable um, livelihood that's from protecting the forest and replanting these trees. So those are the types of crops that we like to try and uh, basically organize our regeneration hubs around with the community that's already working to to develop that industry where they live well
0: that's interesting is that the same rosewood that they had to stop guitar makers from using for the fret for the uh, um, fretboard
1: i i believe it is it has many many uses it's aromatic it's it's uh, because of that very insect-resistant, has a beautiful smell, beautiful color, yep. like many of the trees in the Amazon.
0: Yeah, I think they stopped the guitar manufacturers from using rose rosewood. Mm-hmm. If I I remember, there was like an embargo at some point. So, that maybe it's yes, I,
1: it's still a protected species. It's still protected on the CITES list. Yes.
0: And uh, Tommy, who happens to be a musician, who's running the board tonight, is shaking his head. Yes, you folks at home can't see him, but okay. <laughs> good to know (laughs) yeah um that's amazing I remember when that happened what would you say your goals are for um regenerative farms
1: yeah well as I mentioned I um I really came to this out of a love for just planting trees and, and putting seeds in the ground and restoring degraded land I worked for quite a number of years with different conservation organizations and different farmer training organizations. And I um, sort of came across this model that was being used in Indonesia by a a lifelong um, wildlife conservationist there. And I knew that it would be very valuable in many other places where I had worked, where forest dwelling communities were facing the same sorts of pressures, these extractive industries and exploitation and needing something that they could um, do to provide an economic um, living for their families but not have to destroy the forest in order for that to happen so i sort of reached out to this group in indonesia and just started talking to them learning more about what they did and you know over a 10-year period of sort of voluntarily making introductions to the groups i was working with and um, building support with other change makers around the world, we eventually decided that it would be very useful to create a nonprofit to really take this idea and make it as big as possible. So uh, my goal really is to just start building momentum so that everybody who walks on this planet, who wants to do something to counteract all these forces that are at play, that are doing so much destruction have an opportunity where they can see themselves in making that difference that swings the balance to the other side. So the organization is set up right now as a support organization to help lots of other organizations. We currently have around 20 partners who work with everywhere from 100 farmers to 60,000 farmers to 600,000 farmers in some cases. And what We've just um, officially got started a year and a half ago. So what we would ideally like to see is is our ability to raise funds, to grow this um, momentum and this movement and introduce this concept to other groups that can make it scale rapidly. So currently there's all kinds of financial mechanisms that are pouring into agriculture that's destroying soil, destroying forests. And we as consumers are all part culpable for that. We buy products that are made from those um, farmed products that are doing harm to the planet. So the more we can reach consumers and they can reach companies and tell them there's a better way to do these things It is possible to do at the large scale and here are models, examples, and living real world hubs that are actually turning the tide and regreening these um, degraded habitats and areas, we want you to do that too. Uh, it's my hope, and I may be a dreamer, <laughs> that um, this generation that is really facing these dire consequences in their lifetime will make that a requirement that everybody moves towards regenerative farming and planting trees and stopping deforestation as quickly as possible so that we can Have an inhabitable planet for them to reside on as they grow older, my children included, and hopefully their children from there.
0: Here, here. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, and we're talking with Mary Johnson, founder of Regenerative Farms. On your website, uh you talk about transforming the agriculture industry as well as regenerative economies how do you see the two influencing one another and i think in some ways you may have answered that with the um you know having consumers choose products that aren't um you know aren't damaging permanently damaging the um ecosystem
1: yeah well um as I mentioned, we really, we all, we're all on this ship together. It's sinking and we we can see it sinking fast every day. It's very obvious everywhere on the planet that there's a big problem and it's a life-threatening problem. For many, many people, it's threatening their economic livelihoods. Farmers all across the United States are alternating having to deal with completely devastating floods one year to completely devastating droughts the next the same thing's been happening all across Europe. These huge fires and heat waves, and scientists have seen this coming at us for 25, 30 years, and so has industry. And we just keep pushing the can, you know, down the down the way, thinking that somebody else is going to solve it. And um, we really have to stop doing that we have to recognize that the planet has these thresholds where things can spiral out of control quickly. And I'm in this field, so I've had the the last decade of kind of getting these alarming reports and new evidence on a daily basis. And many of my colleagues for a long time were very depressed, people who worked their entire lives protecting specific endangered species. I mean they would literally come into the office completely depressed regularly and just crying and sobbing because of what they were witnessing in the world. And for me, starting this organization was my chance to sort of make my life matter as much as I can, try and do what I can to to try and put the reins on where we're taking things and to try and motivate other people to realize that they have the power to do that just as much as I do and probably much, much more and that if we all start to do that together, we can turn this around within our lifetimes. We know what to do, the solutions exist, and and it's really the power is in our pocket. People have been looking for a long time for politicians to take care of this, for intergovernmental panels to study it and figure everything out, but we didn't get to this point because of politicians. We got to this point from purchases from companies taking actions that have mined places destroyed for us and it's still happening the majority of the economy is still in that outdated taking us off the cliff pathway and we all know this but most of us feel so overwhelmed by how depressing that seems that we can't lift our head up to realize that there are these really marvelous opportunities for us to get involved and make the change happen and be part of that and it's one of the things I love about being from the valley and being part of um, this, this place on the planet because a lot of people are really taking those steps to do their part and teach other people how to get involved. Um, but we need to do that more and more and definitely need to kind of help bring those hopeful solutions to light so that people don't feel desperate and alone and trying to bring people together so that they can see that they're not the only one making a little tiny drop in an ocean of, of um, the problems that we have to face, but that there's so many little drops out there that we can start to make waves and really shift things.
0: You know, that's interesting. You say that the politicians, you know, intergovernmental policy groups, and, you know, while they come up with studies, they it doesn't seem like much action gets taken. And I heard a long time ago that a really good politician is one that doesn't start the parade. But if there's a parade, they step right in front of it. You know, they mm-hmm. notice the parade. And your your approach is really saying that it's the economics that's driving it until that changes, you know, and that's that's based on all our individual purchases and decisions, that you can actually change it um, from the ground up. It's interesting to not wait for the politicians to do something. Yeah, Cause yeah won't. it's
1: the economics and the social systems, the oppressive systems that we allow to continue that keep such inequality, and it's, it's so invisible here if you're a, a USer and you haven't left the United States ever or in a while. It's very invisible just how much our streets are literally paved with gold compared to everywhere else in the world. And if we just started making uh, more equitable decisions, then there would be a lot more money to go around to put into these solutions and turning things around really quickly.
0: So so what is, you mentioned geography, and I haven't traveled very much, I have to admit. Um, what's your geographic reach? I've heard you say Indonesia, you know, Arizona, all kinds of places. But what's your, um, you know, what's your, is, is right. it worldwide? I mean, maybe yeah, it is. Yeah, we,
1: we are focused largely on places sort of around the equatorial tropics. But our model is also um, valuable here in the United States, we have partners who are working sort of in the Four Corners region of Colorado in Hawaii. Um, and Hawaii. Uh, and our, our primary partners, though, at the moment are ones who are working in really dire circumstances with families that are in imminent threat of famine and dying from hunger. So we have partners we've been working with for a decade who are in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we have new partners this year working in Haiti where... Gasoline is spiked to $35 a gallon. Holy um, we've got folks all across Africa and in Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia. So we're, we're quite wide in our um, distribution. And we have many other partners who would love to work with us. So we're really just looking for as much funding and as many volunteers to get involved as possible to help us spread this um, very helpful approach to other places who are looking for it
0: um not that we um prepped you for this but i will ask you a surprise question any thoughts sure. on ukraine and sort of what what you know sort of what impact there given what's transpiring and and fertilizer not being available from russia maybe it's an opportunity to change how we do business
1: yeah i mean every day there are really big shocks to our global food production and supply chain systems right now um and that's part of why the communities that we work with are really sort of hungry for our help, literally hungry, (laughs) for our help to help them transition themselves into these more diversified agroforestry systems, um, because they can't get seed because of the supply chain disruptions, or their government has been trying to steer agricultural policy to get them kind of hooked on the chemical agriculture model, and um, they can't afford it. They can't afford the GMO seeds and the pesticides and the fertilizers that come with it. Uh, One of our groups is the National Seed Savers Network in Kenya, and they've had to fight very hard against the government pushing them there to um, not even be able to save their own seed anymore. They were trying to outlaw that, and they were trying to outlaw using your own manure to fertilize your crops. So the people we're working with are really fighting these uh, very dominating kind of global powers that are very greedy and not looking towards the good of the people for sure. Um, so there's there's a lot of work to be done, obviously, but these kinds of shocks uh, are ones that are opportunities for change. Even here in the United States, um, Adam Chappell is a, a great young farmer in the Arkansas area who has wonderful YouTube videos and he shares very upfront kind of all of the benefits that happened to him as their family came Close to having to shut down their multi generational farm because the cost of inputs were so high it was bankrupting them. And so they just kind of tightened their belt and cut that all out and went to regenerative farming. And suddenly they were, you know, without a million dollars a year of input costs and their soils started to improve and their biodiversity started to improve. He's an entomologist also, so he got to really watch and when everybody was sort of doomsday saying that it was going to be terrible he would have plagues of insects he was able to be like no actually they're not here my my plants are doing great in these diverse cover crops and um, so there are really great examples out there of what can happen when sort of things become dire so people can now that we have the internet look and find these wonderful models, get in touch and kind of learn from each other. And that's part of what we also try to do is just connect these different farmer leaders from around the world so that they can share ideas, help each other out, um, share innovations, and and just know that they're not alone in doing this. That They aren't crazy (laughs) because a lot of times it feels like um, you have to really be willing to put your neck out on the line to do some of these things when everybody else is doing something in a different way. It's good to have a community to... Support you along that journey?
0: Yes, um, put their necks out. A lot of farmers do that. Well, we need to take a quick station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Mary Johnson, founder of Regenerative Farms. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM, an independent, nonprofit, community run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station.
1: Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short- or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at forbeslibrary.org outreach.
0: Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy,
1: The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station.
0: This is Sue Timberlake, and um, Jessica has the night off. Tom... Tom Twilight is uh, helping us tonight keep us on the air, which is great, because it's, you know, COVID time, and we're just all working with Zoom, and it's, you know, it's a, it's an adventure at any way. Um, we've been talking tonight with Mary Johnson, founder of Regenerative Farms, and I was going to ask you sort of, um, uh, sort of how big is your organization, how many staff people, or what are their roles, you know, collaborations just to get a sense of your organization would be great.
1: Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So we're a very lean sort of early stage nonprofit, but we've been around, as I mentioned, kind of collaborating informally for a decade now. So we have just me as a formal staff person part-time in order to spread the, the money that we are able to get from our donors as far and wide as possible to meet the need that we have. But we do a tremendous amount with professional volunteers, Um, sort of in an average year, we get around $200,000 worth of time donated to us by all types of different professional volunteers who help us with everything from marketing to strategy and um, all of the types of things that a nonprofit needs as it's getting started. And then we work on the ground through the partnerships that we have with local organizations that are community led and. Um, decide what they need and what they want to do and we just support them and share resources and try to help them scale up their work to reach as many families as we can as quickly as possible and to restore as much land and protect as much forest as we can. So in that way we have actively about 10 um, regeneration hubs as we call them uh, participating in our support programs and capacity building programs. And then we have uh, around another 10 who are looking for support that we're trying to find donors to help um, get them involved in the programs as well. And then we have other types of partnerships. Um, So we work with groups like Trees That Feed, which is another nonprofit organization. They donate tree seedlings, fruit tree seedlings, um, different kinds of educational materials. And even in Haiti in our program there, Um, There's some women's employment opportunities, and they donate uh, the the startup expenses to getting these uh, women's self-help groups up and off the ground there. So we have lots of different partnerships. We're always open to more to try and, again, sort of stretch the dollars that we do get as far as possible and really share this model with those who want it.
0: It's interesting Valley free radio has no employees
1: okay. yes, <laughs> and, a lot and of we're, you know do well also... that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and it's amazing because in the valley you know as you said you're you it's an environment where you can do this we we're on the air with radio casting you know basically 24 hours a day you know some of it's pre pre-recorded but a lot of it's live like this this show and uh, it's amazing what you can do with um, goodwill and intention and um do you do you have any internships or how to is there a way for people to help you that's sort of formalized or just contact yes. you?
1: yeah we we definitely take as much support as we can get we sort of try to channel people's expertise into the place that can be most useful um, we we like all types of volunteers so we have a multi-pronged fundraising strategy so anybody who's young and nimble with social media publicity, who can kind of blast out different campaigns that we have for fundraising, can help And other folks who are maybe retired and just have a couple of hours a week who want to share something from their lifelong um, expertise in a certain field in uh, sales or marketing or fundraising, any of those kinds of things. Um, We are looking for a couple of new board members And um, occasionally we do have college students who get involved. We had a a Berkeley graduate student go to Kenya last year and volunteer with one of our field partners. Uh, She was doing a practicum there for about two months and helped them with some of their own research um, about their uh, metrics and monitoring of their programs. So there's many ways to get involved and if not directly with regenerative farms. Pretty much every one of the partner organizations that we have is similarly under, underfunded and understaffed with many, many people who want their support. And so there can always be ways to, to get involved. If you know how to create websites, our partner in the Congo needs a website right now. Even if it's just a one pager, we would love help with that. So um, if somebody's looking for a way to start feeling great by donating their time, we would love to hear from you.
0: Oh, nice. I'm glad you said about the retired folks because I'm pushing 70, so it's always good to – VFR is pretty intergenerational as well. We have a lot of young folks with a lot of energy and a lot of you know, web and social media skills. Um, would you mention your webpage? We'll ask you again at the end, but just so people hear
1: where you are. Sure. It's uh, pretty simple. It's just www.regenerative farms
0: with an s dot O-R-G. great thank you um what is your um hub model and what's the history behind that you've mentioned it in a couple of instances but i'm just for people that more
1: not... yeah we probably should have should have outlined that a little bit earlier on so really it's um It's a concept that, again, I reached out to this orangutan conservationist who spent many years of his life kind of developing. He was sort of on the front lines of all kinds of terrible wildlife trafficking in Indonesia as the palm oil um, expansion was happening and deforesting. Did you say orangutan? Yes, yes. So this was a model that was created there to try and provide an alternative for the local people so that they weren't selling their land or having their land stolen and taken by timber companies and palm oil companies. And, and so this individual you know, started off working in forestry, but um, because of the times and where he was living, quickly kind of became a champion for these, these wild orangutans that were being uh, harmed very, very badly by this transition to a deforestation economy there. So he um, sort of just used his knowledge from his expertise in all kinds of different areas and tried to figure out how can we create more value in a standing tropical forest for the local people so that they have the ability to protect it than these extractive industries that are coming in and taking down the habitat of these wild species. Um, And the orangutan in particular is one you really can't ignore if you're in that context because they're like people. They're very, very much like people. Wonderful, beautiful, wild people. And so if suddenly their whole forest is gone, there are orphaned babies and there are mothers running around in the communities that you become very quickly aware that there's a really, really terrible problem going on. Um, And that is really what started this off, um, according to this orangutan conservationist for him, he was in a market one day and after the market kind of packed up and went home for the night, like a farmer's market, he found a baby orangutan just tossed on the trash heap. And they're very much like human babies. So he rescued that animal and then started a wildlife rescue center for orangutans and that over time um, led to him creating this village hub model. So in Indonesia, there's a tree species that grows wild in the forest, sort of akin to a maple tree here, where the local people know how to tap it and take the juice without harming the plant, and the juice is very um, rich in sugars. And they boil the sap down and create a, a high-value um, sugar product, and many other products can be made out of that as well. So. The hub that he created there as an economic center that could provide all these different benefits for the local communities was centered around this wild sugar palm, not to be confused with the very destructive African oil palm that was also happening there, sort of that other end of the spectrum of regeneration. Um, So he developed these initial iterations of this miniature Um, factory in a box that could be brought into these remote villages and help people find a way to create economic livelihoods by protecting forests. And people would have to agree to a number of different um, parameters to join a cooperative where they could sell their sap in to have a higher value created from this little mini sugar processing center. And then that economic uh, engine also was used to pay for reforestation actions, uh, create a clinic, a virtual clinic there where there wasn't health access before, fund a school, and just such like a holistic package so that people were really compelled to join and get involved and protect the forest and the wildlife, rather than sort of an individualistic approach. So that's the basic thinking is just this value-added processing center that is used as an economic model that can then fuel the restoration of the degraded lands and protection of the standing forest around it. And then those can be replicated across the landscape so more and more farmers can have these benefits that they otherwise don't have access to. And we took that model just tweaked it a little bit to use it to also improve um, gender equity, focus around women's needs first and food security and nutrition security. So we have an approach where we um, help families plan a year-round food forest so that they have access to nutritious food to fight malnutrition the whole year through the dry season as well and to provide these economic Boosts to women who often are kind of constrained because of oppression in their local system to having the worst quality land to farm um, and not being able to, to travel and go to the better opportunities that men in their communities have. So we help bring these diversified systems where they can have high value crops that together can be aggregated and processed and sold to multiple markets through this food processing hub.
0: Um, Again, not to throw you a curveball, but microloans, any um, involvement with those groups that help help you do this or your your colleagues do that with microloans? I mean, how do you end up with a a little factory in a box, obviously (laughs) subsidized by someone?
1: Yeah, um, we so we work with a variety of different kinds of groups. Some of the groups we work with, like the one in the Amazon, Camino Verde is a not-for-profit organization. So it functions as a normal grant-seeking organization to fund its approach. And then some of the revenue that's generated from the sale of the products that they produce there also goes back to fund more of that work. Um, And then a a spin-off for-profit, sort of benefit corporation model came out of this um, initial nonprofit in Indonesia. So that is a a partner that is called ForestWise, which is a company now, which is the company's mission is to scale up forest protection. So they um, actually have investors, social impact investors who help them with some costs. We've connected them with Kiva to try and get a, a, a loan through that program. It's not um, through their micro lending program, but they have a social enterprise program as well. So that's one of the roles that regenerative farms plays is just sort of trying to piece together these different types of finance mechanisms so that there's enough money to get these hubs started and off the ground. And then some of them have relationships with local cooperative farmer banks and things like that so that the farmers can also access credit and or, um, They provide seedlings and um, access to tools and things that farmers need to transition into these more regenerative forest farming approaches.
0: You are listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we're talking tonight with Mary Johnson, founder of Regenerative Farms. So that's very interesting, sort of piecing all those pieces together. And you mentioned um, seed um, seed savers and seed sharing, um, is a, is a key part of, of what makes this really work. It's, it's amazing. Um, how do you pick the places where you set up a hub? I mean, it sounds like, um, it, you know, there, there are things that are going on, which is a natural, um, ally of yours. Uh, but just, is there a, cause I know you said you tweaked the model a little bit too, so.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, I would say at this stage, the the places sort of pick us more than us picking them to some extent. We do have some criteria around the types of groups and leaders that we want to work with so that we know that we're putting the donor dollars that we get to the best use. Um, so, so far, we've really had groups reaching out to us more than us reaching out to two groups. Occasionally, oh, I will hear some amazing leader in the news doing something amazing. So I'll reach out to them if I can see that what they're doing could benefit from having some of these additional aspects kind of built in around what they're already doing. Um, We really try not to start hubs ourselves. It's not what our mission is. Um, We're really trying to be a support organization to find highly effective leaders who are deeply embedded in the place that they live, who have relationships already in place. Um, And we just try to bring as many resources as we can to help them amplify the work that they're already doing. And sometimes that's just giving them access to another leader who has been processing a different kind of product that they wanted to learn more about, or other times is helping them get connected to training around different approaches for teaching about gender inclusive business um, practices or community uh, actions that their groups of farmers could be engaged in to bring women to the table more and make more equitable distribution of the resources that come out of their processing um, hub and those types of things. A lot of times what we find our partners need the most kind of across the board is the support with fundraising. Um they they need to know how to do it. They need sort of a bridge relationship with donors that are based here in the United States if they're not a US nonprofit just for the financial track transactions. Um, sometimes they need access to somebody who has good uh computer skills because they can't get good internet access where they are. There's no um way that they can kind of use the very limited old computer that they maybe can get to in a computer um, center at night after they worked all day to really develop high quality materials that are needed in today's fundraising world. So those are the kinds of things that we do to some extent. Then on the other side, we sort of collect knowledge and innovations and these leading edge scientific breakthroughs on how to really help them accelerate that actual land regeneration that they're doing. And so we try to be a clearinghouse for sources of information to help give them access to these cutting-edge tools so that they can do more of what they're already doing and have it be more profitable or provide other kinds of benefits that the families really need where they are, so that incentivizes the forest protection and reforestation work even further.
0: I think you've touched on it a fair amount, but do you want to say more about why um, why you focus on women in communities? Um, it It's very interesting to me. I think a lot of folks have heard stories, so I don't know if you have some more stories yeah, you'd like to timely, share. Yeah, it's a timely
1: timely subject here. If you're a woman in the United States, then, uh, it may be somewhat disturbing to sort of see the backslide that our current su- sort of... Um, political climate is taking in terms of women's rights, but outside of the U.S., many, many women around the world still live very, very close to slavery on a daily basis with very few rights, very little self-determination, little access to education, almost no access to any economic power, um, no reproductive rights. uh, and, And so... All of those oppressions that are still a daily reality for women around the world who can't have any control over their own fertility, um, it just makes life so much harder when you're having children every year or every other year, your whole childbearing age. Um, So this leads to climate impacts being incredibly devastating for women and girls. because of all these sort of compounded oppressions, they don't have the same access to resources as their male peers. Basic things like they don't get taught how to swim. So if there's a flood, they die. They can't swim to safety. They don't get taught how to drive. So if there's an emergency, a hurricane, they don't have access to drive away from that threat. They similarly can't just go somewhere else and get a job. They're tied to caretaking responsibilities with their children. So there's just all of these factors that many, many people who do environmental work just aren't aware of. I haven't seen them aware of it. For most of my career working in natural resources and farming, there's never been any mention whatsoever about gender equity and how important that is to how you design interactions with farmers and how you bring women into that um, that playing field in, in a way that can help them overcome these tremendous burdens that are making everything less attainable for them. Um, if you start to dig into the statistics globally where women sit in the world, it, in terms of land ownership, access to microfinance, any kind of finance, um, all of these kinds of things, women are still very much at the bottom of the barrel. So it was very important to me as a woman to make sure that the way I go about my work puts that front and center to try and do what I can to start changing that where I work, at least.
0: So um, I just want to mention one thing for our musicians. Uh, There's a song that was banned that the Beatles did. It was called... um, Women are, I'll paraphrase, slaves of the world. But Yoko Ono wrote it, and the, and the song was banned because of the slur in the title. You can't actually, it's very hard to hear it, but it's out there in the world, and it talks about the role of women. It's very interesting to me that you that you focus on that. So we have about a minute left, maybe a little less. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your website or upcoming events?
1: Well, I just would put put a plug out there for anybody who would like to get involved in whatever way they can. If it's a a one-time donation or a reoccurring monthly $10 a month, it will go directly to helping women plant trees that are highly nutritious fruit trees that can feed them and their families for years. Um, You can direct exactly how you want us to spend that on our website. That's www.regenerativefarms.org. Um, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my email is mary at uh, I'd love to hear what you think, have your feedback, ideas, anything that you would like to do to get involved and help us bring this opportunity to more people around the planet.
0: Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Mary Johnson, founder of Regenerative Farms, and thank our guest engineer, Imagineer tonight, Tom Twilight. Uh, You'll find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. Our theme song, Sometimes I Wonder Where Our Food Comes From, was written and performed by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers for this Farm to Fork radio program. And um, this Farm to Fork show will re-air this Thursday from 11 to 12 p.m. Tune in to Remastered here on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM every Sunday from 8 to 9 a.m. And join host Kevin Boucher. As he talks with the rock and roll artists and eyewitnesses to the music and moments that have helped shape our lives, a combination of interviews, music, and special guests will share their first hand accounts and shine a new light on the artists, venues, or trends that define the spirit of rock and roll culture. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for Twilight's Poetry Pub with host Tommy Twilight. Sometimes